Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 13 as we continue our series in the book of Romans. And you have an outline in your uh, worship folder, so I invite you to take that out as well. One of the things we've seen is that in Romans chapters 1 through 11, Paul is laying out doctrine and theology. And then beginning at Romans 12, all the way to the end of the book of Romans, he's talking about the practical and ethical aspects of the Christian life. In other words, now that I know this gospel, how should it affect me on a daily basis? So that's what he's talking about here. What difference should it make in my life? And the most definitive characteristic <clears throat> of that transformation, as you've got it on your outline, uh, is love. You know, God used <clears throat> one verse of, of scripture in particular in my life to bring me to faith in him. I was on a retreat with a, with a church group. I was not a Christian along with many others on that, on that weekend retreat. <clears throat> and the speaker shared 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that was going around my head like a merry-go-round. I kept thinking about that verse and thinking, man, I need a new start in life. I, I didn't know the Lord. I was heading in a wrong direction in, in many areas of my life, and I needed that. Um, the Lord used this passage that we're looking at this morning in the life of the early church father, Augustine, to bring him to faith in Christ. Um, even Martin Luther drew on many of the teachings of Augustine uh, during the time of the Reformation. One of uh, his most influential books is the book Confessions, uh, the Confessions of St. Augustine. This is considered to be the first autobiography in Western literature. And it's an honest look at Augustine's life and his struggles and the story of how he came to faith in Christ. Uh, his mother was a, a great prayer warrior. And any mothers who are praying for their children, uh, boy, you can follow the example of Augustine's mother, who was an amazing prayer warrior, prayed for him daily. Uh, and in spite of his trying to resist, uh, because he loved the life of sin that he was in, Augustine gradually found himself drawn toward Christianity. And the two things that touched him most deeply were singing, the singing of, of hymns and Christian songs, and then also the writings of the New Testament, in particular of the Apostle Paul. And because of his attachment to sin, Augustine wrestled and was, at the beginning, never fully could surrender his life to God. But there was a voice he heard that he believed was the voice of God, who said, take and read. And he considered that to mean the, the New Testament, and so he took it and he read the verses that we are looking at today. So let's read these verses that God used in Augustine's life as he hopefully will use them in all of our lives this morning. Beginning at verse eight, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For who, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. 
and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is God's word. So the title from our our, um, sermon this morning comes from verse 14, the idea of putting on the clothes of Christ. Scripture tells us in several different places, Paul talks about what we are to put on. He talks in Galatians that we are to put on Christ. Put on Christ, he says, like putting on new clothes. And then we're to put on a new nature. In Ephesians and Colossians, the apostle says, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. That's our goal, is to become like Jesus. And we're to put on the armor of God. In Ephesians, Paul says, put on all of God's armor. Um, In the East, even today, clothes are very much a part of a person's identity. And, and how they fit, where they fit into society. It signifies where they fit. Uh, there used to be a, a television show called What Not to Wear. Um, curiosity, show of hands, how many of you have seen that show? Um, okay, a few of you have. It's a, it's a, it was an interesting show. It was kind of, as I would watch it, a, a lesson in psychology because there was often psychological reasons why people dressed the way they did and they would offer them, I don't know what, $5,000, I think, to buy a new wardrobe, but they had to throw their whole old wardrobe away. Um, but it's, it's interesting because when you talk, when the, the people were interviewed afterwards, it said oftentimes they would say this new wardrobe has given me a new confidence in life. Uh, so to put on something biblically is to believe in a certain way and then behave accordingly. Um, however, we're, we're, we aren't putting on something to hide what's inside but to do, as Christians, but to display our true identity in Christ. So what we put on reminds us that, that we are to live a life that's controlled by the Holy Spirit. We can't become holy without the Holy Spirit. And as a believer, we looked at this in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If we are Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. But, but we play a part in that. You know, I was thinking of dressing and, and the symbolism of all that means, and I was thinking of police officers. I, I know that some of you have police officers in your families, and I don't think that every police officer thinks about this every time they put on their, uh, their uniform, but they put on a bulletproof vest, which is a great reminder of, for them that they need to be careful. Uh, they put on a uniform, which is, uh, I think, a, a reminder of, for them of their identity as, a, as an officer of the law and the example that they set. 
they put on a badge, and that reminds them of the responsibility that they have to represent the city and, and the citizens. And, and they strap on a weapon, which reminds them that they're steward, a steward of lives, and they uh, are to steward that in, with great care. And so to clothe ourselves in Christ from this passage from the Apostle Paul means specifically, first of all, to live righteously. That's number one on your outline. To live righteously. Let no debt remain outstanding. Uh, Paul says we should not be in a position to ever owe anything to anybody uh, except love. And this is a broader context than just money. We're gonna talk about money, but it's broader than that. Remember, look at, back at verse seven. He talks about paying our taxes and tolls, whatever, but also to give those in, in positions of authority respect and honor. Um, the only exception is the command to love. And let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So love touches the Christian's heart, and then beyond that, uh, it makes him, hopefully, makes us beyond reproach so that we can, in the matter of money, so that nothing is keeping us from, from extending grace to other people. I love the story of Zacchaeus in Scripture. Uh, Zacchaeus is an example of, of this. No sooner had, had this dishonest tax collector come face to face with Jesus then, uh, then he, he shouted in Luke chapter 19, and he said, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I will give back to him four times what I took. And Jesus responds by saying, Salvation has come to this house today. Uh, Zacchaeus was not saved because he was, uh, he, he was not saved because he put his financial affairs in order. That's not what saved Zacchaeus. He wanted to put his financial affairs in order because he was saved. And the first thing that came to his mind was money. That's what he lived, that was the world he lived in. Uh, his personal contact with the Lord Jesus made him want to do the right thing. And so Paul's point is simple, and you have this on your outline, be a person of honor. Keep your promises. Don't make the people you owe money to track you down. You need to seek them out. You communicate with them, and you're completely honest and forthright with your situation. If you're in a position where you maybe can't pay, let them know that. They'll, they'll, chances are they'll want to work with you. Um, you know, one of the things that I cover with couples in premarital counseling is the importance of communication. And, and we'll say that communication is to love what blood is to the body. Think of what blood does for the body. It gives us life. It, it, it filters out impurities. It, it heals wounds that we have. And communication does that same thing when we communicate with others. So we need to communicate with people that, that we may owe something to. Um, and we make an agreement of what we need and when we can pay it off. And of course what this means is that if you've committed your time to something, if you've said to somebody you've, you've given your word, then be all there, be present with those people. It was the missionary Jim Elliott who was killed uh, actually in Ecuador by the Alca Indians that he went out to reach uh, and so was a, a martyr of the faith. And he said this, wherever you are, 
be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. And if you're in a situation that you don't believe is the will of God, then maybe you should get out of that situation. But when you're in the situation, you live it to the hilt. You're all present. You're all there. And that's the reward for living debt-free and not owing anybody but love is freedom. Again, it goes beyond money. Have you ever made a promise to someone that you'll do something for them and not carried it through? Have you ever said, hey, we should get together and never made a call to make a time to get together? By the way, if I've said that to you, please text me and let's make a time to get together. Um, I I don't want to be, I don't want to owe that to anybody. I want to get together. If I've said that, I meant it. Uh, Have you ever said, I'll be praying for you? And then they come back to you and say, hey, thanks for praying for me. And you go, oh man, I forgot. But you know, that's why I would say, if you say you're going to pray for someone, pray for them right then. And at least you'll have prayed for them one time. And then hopefully the Lord will keep bringing it to mind and you can continue to pray for them. But the less we must do out of obligation, the more we're able to give freely. So we keep our list of obligations short, allowing us more room to communicate the grace that God has given us to other people. It's like Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. And this goes beyond merely just loving believers, right? We're to love each other. For sure, that's Jesus said, and all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So we should especially care for each other. But Jesus says in Luke 6, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? And so we need to love those outside of the body of Christ as well. So the Greek word translated neighbor in verse, in verse 9 means one of a different kind, literally. So someone who's very different from you. That includes difference in belief, difference in theology, difference in personality, difference in politics, difference in mannerisms, difference in tastes or race or values or history. Loving people that are different from us. In other words, with love, like someone said, difference should make no difference. Love is a perpetual debt that can never be zeroed out. And so in verse 9, there's some specific commands about what loving God and loving your neighbor should look like in a way that pleases God. Verse 9, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul called love the fulfillment of the law, which is what Jesus communicated as well. So the law is not only an expression of God's character, but it points to his vision of how the universe should work. The problem is, and this is on your outline, is that sin always distorts what God created to be good, and it always causes harm. It always causes harm, to yourself at least, if not to other people around you. And so in verse 9, Paul is saying adultery, murder, stealing, coveting, are all sins that serve self at the expense of the victim. There's always suffering as a result of sin. For Paul, love is what the new kingdom is is going to be all about. And the kingdom that Jesus will bring in again is going to be a kingdom that's about love. I want want our church to be a place of love 
Uh, we, of course we should. <clears throat> and then he spells out what that means. And, and in, in the meantime, we're the examples of God's kingdom. We're representatives of his kingdom. We're citizens of heaven sent out into the world to represent the kingdom. It's like we could say, you know what, when we leave this sanctuary on a Sunday, we go out into the fields of harvest that are white for harvest. And, and, and to do that harvest, and we're called, and there should be a, a sense of urgency that we feel about that. We, we, we love each other because God is love. We're reflecting who he is. And we live according to the truth because God is truth. From Paul's thought about not being in the debt anyone, uh, he's talking about how we're to behave in, in, as Christians in society. And, and as Christians, we're not just members together here, but we're to be different and, and we're to the people around the, 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 who live near us and, and observe us should see the difference that it's made in our lives. And that begins with a transformed mind back in the beginning of chapter 12. In every context that we live, uh, that we, we, where we find ourselves, we're to be devoted to God as a living sacrifice. Again, going back to Romans chapter 12. Um, it's easy to see what Paul's driving at in this passage, but man, it's not so easy for us to, to see how seriously he considers us being in debt. In, in fact, in Psalm 37, verse 21, it says, the wicked borrow and never repay, but the godly are generous givers. Just what we've been talking about. And so I, I want the scriptures to examine our hearts. I want us to allow the scriptures to examine us for a bit. So again, just as we reflect on this, do we have any unpaid debt? And do we have a plan for repayment? Do we have any unturned, un, unreturned property? Uh, again, we should not allow a debt to go on indefinitely. We, we need to pay it off. We don't allow a debt to keep accumulating. We, we don't allow it to become an addiction. And we definitely don't avoid paying off what we owe. Why? Because we can be free then to be more effective in serving the Lord, extending grace. We need to make those things right. And it's clear, and this is again on your outline, that Paul considers God's moral law here to be binding on the believer. Nobody is saved by obeying the law. But by being saved by God's grace, that doesn't alter the law. And that's how we can live it out. So uh, Paul is saying that's what it should look like. So all this to say, and again, this is on your outline, if my love is genuine, it will be worked out in right action. I will treat others as I would like them to treat me. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. God's law is always obeyed. When it's obeyed to the fullest, it displays love. The second thing that we're to clothe ourselves with in Christ, specifically from this passage, is to live lovingly, which makes sense. That's verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So think for a second of, of, of a bullet. For a bullet to hit a target, it must have both an explosive to propel it and a barrel to direct it. Explosives on their own are dangerous. And a barrel on its own is worthless. So in society, the target that I'm aiming at is not just the not, I know it's a double negative, not just the not doing of any harm to people who are around me, like in verse 9, but love propels me like a bullet 
and God's law directs it. And so I obey God's law. But as I do that, I'm fulfilling love. I'm living in love. Uh, so neither is any good on their own, but boy, if I'm realized both of them together, they're, they're powerful. The law needs to be filled with love, and love needs to be directed by the law. That's what Paul's saying. So instead of living selfishly, our concern then is the well-being of those around us. Uh, on your outline again, we're not so concerned with meeting the needs of people around us that we forget that their greatest need is a personal relationship with God. And we're not so focused on their spiritual needs that we forget, forget that they have physical needs and other needs that we can oftentimes meet in a practical way. And so a consistent believer is one who has their heart open to the Redeemer and their hands open to the people around them to be able to help them. Because we serve the one who does not change, even when someone doesn't respond in love to us, we still love them, even when it's hard. Like what Jesus said back in, 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 in Luke 6. Um, so the underlying principle of the Jewish law, of the Jewish economy was the law. But what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that the underlying principle of, of the Christian, and in the Christian world, should be love. And then finally, number three, is to clothe ourselves in Christ means specifically to live expectantly. To live expectantly. Verse 11, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Man, these verses are a call to action, especially given the shortness of the time before Jesus is coming back. Uh, I, when is Jesus coming back? I'll give you a great theological answer. I don't know. But I do know that it's closer than it was 24 hours ago. It's a day closer. And there's, what Paul is saying is that there should be a sense of, 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 for all of us of, of action, a call to action, to realize the shortness of the time. Um, this is a call for us to live as Christians every day in every place that we are, everywhere that we are, for the glory of God, because now is the time. Paul's point here, and this is again on your outline, is that salvation here is a future reality and it draws nearer every day. Sleep here is a, is a metaphor for living a careless life apart from God. But we should sense an urgency about the task that's been given to us of sharing the good news with those around us. Um, Note the determination here in Paul's words. It's as though he were sounding reveille to wake up a, a soldier out of their bed and onto their feet immediately. So we're to wake up, we're to get busy because of the nearness of Christ's return. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know how long we're gonna be here. You all know that life is fragile, so fragile. And so we need to take advantage of every opportunity we have right now. And when he says in verse 11, understanding the present time, Paul could have used two different words for time. The first word he could have used is the Greek word chronos, from which we get the word chronology. That's not the word that he uses here. But he uses the word kairos. And kairos is a little bit like uh, the period of time or a quality uh, of time. It's a, a, a fixed season or an appointed season. Like, for example, in Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities, he says these are the, the best of times and the worst of times. 
He could have said it was the best of kairos and the worst of kairos. That's the, the proper use of the word that Paul uses here for time. So what Paul is saying is knowing the kind of time we live in, knowing that God is coming back soon at some point, what are we to do? We're to live lives of love. And we're made to make that our Christ. So Paul has actually been talking about this since the beginning of chapter 12. And you've got a list of things right on, the, on your outline to, to begin with maintaining a balanced view of ourselves and end with meeting all of our obligations to government officials and, and to give them the respect they're due. Those are all ways that we express love. And then verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul is saying, and this is a paraphrase of verse 12, as the long dark night continues before the dawning of Christ's return, walk away from deeds of darkness and walk into the light. Sort of live in the light of the truth of who God is. And then the apostle lists in pairs the sins uh, that were particularly, and these were particularly the verses that touched the heart of St. Augustine. Uh, so verse 13, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness. So the words refer specifically to these wild nighttime festivals they had to the god of, uh, uh, in honor of Bacchus, who was the, the Roman god of, of wine. And uh, it began with a drunken parade through the streets and ended up in a lot of sexual immorality. So this is not a ban on having fun. Uh, this is not even against alcohol in moderation. Uh, this has to do with turning alcohol into recreation and specifically in turning alcohol into an addiction and allowing that substance instead of the Holy Spirit to direct your lives and to control your life. It's like what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter five. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, that could be a whole sermon, but briefly, let me just say this. It means that you are under the influence of someone you love. It's like that. If you have a, I know families that have had grandparents that have come and lived in the house. A lot of adjustments have to be made. You have to find out what grieves the grandparent and you need to live your life accordingly and you find out what, on the other hand, what pleases them and you do what pleases them. It's the same thing in, in, in being filled with the Holy Spirit. We learn what grieves the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Through scripture. And we learn what pleases the Holy Spirit, what pleases God. How do we learn that? Again, through knowing God's word. We have to know God's word. And so, and then he says, not in sexual immorality or debauchery. Speaking of, of sex being for the marriage relationship. Uh, we put behind us the way the world thinks about the sexual relationship and treats sex. And then the last pair, not in dissension or jealousy. That will ruin a relationship, dissension and jealousy. That will ruin a church. And so we put that behind us. You know, for many years, Sir Walter Scott was considered the leading literary figure in the British Empire. No one could write as well as he, as he could. 
And then the works of Lord Byron started to appear and their greatness was immediately evident. In fact, there was an anonymous critic who praised Lord Byron's poems in a London newspaper by writing this. In the presence of these brilliant works of poetic genius, Scott could no longer be considered the leading poet of England. And because of their love for the writings of Sir Walter Scott, many people were up in arms about what had been said in the newspaper until they discovered that the unnamed reviewer had been none other than Sir Walter Scott himself. So he was humbly saying, I've read Lord Byron and my work doesn't compare to his. But that's the humility that we're all called to, especially in the body of Christ. And then finally, verse 14, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, the way one commentator put it, instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, emulate him, copy him, imitate him. You enjoy union with him, so live accordingly, be like him, and proceed to the work of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Kill off everything which uh, makes yielding to temptation easier and resistance to it harder. Kill it off. In short, and this is on your outline, live differently. If we do submit, if we do live our lives for the, for the pleasure of God, it will prove that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. And not only so, but others will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, like it says in Matthew chapter five. You know, in the history of philosophy, the five most talked about topics by all philosophers across the board, Christian and non-Christian alike, are number one, God, Number two, man. Number three, the state. Number four, knowledge. And number five, love. And think about what the Bible says about love. Nowhere is love defined more carefully and specifically than in the Bible. And at the same time, more broadly. We're to love the people who don't love us. Um, yeah, well, we don't think of paying our taxes as demonstrating love, but according to Paul, it was. When we obey the speed limit, when we get our automobiles inspected in time, when we serve on jury duty, we let our voices be heard by voting, we're expressing love. That's what Paul's saying in the greater context of what we're looking at. And when we treat other drivers respectfully on the road, when we allow someone to take a, our, our, the parking spot maybe that we've been waiting for, in a little way, but it's an important way, we're saying, you know what, my life for yours. I, I wanna live like Christ lived, and so I'm offering my life for yours by doing these things. What's the way we express love? And so small things are, they're small, but they add up, they're important. And we will all look different with Jesus' clothing on. So in your private moments, when you're by yourself, is your life look like what you say it should look like? Are you living for Jesus? Are you living for this audience of one? You know, how about the idea of, of, of holding on to a grudge? Are you holding on to a grudge against someone that, that you need to be offering forgiveness to? And you're like saying, no, it's, it's too fun to have a grudge. Well, you know what? It's, it doesn't please God. So we need to offer forgiveness. You know, when you're in a restaurant, do you leave a generous tip? 
I, I hope as Christians we're known for, for leaving generous tips. We should be. Believe me, people notice. They notice if you pray before a meal and then don't leave a good tip. I want to leave you with a letter that came to a, a guy that I know who's a pastor here in California. And um, here's what this letter said. I'm writing this letter to you uh, to know so that you can know how some of your members touched my life. Four years ago, my husband and I lived in a small two-bedroom apartment with our two small children when we were suddenly stunned and blessed with the birth of triplet boys. What a blessing. <laughs> our family was thousands of miles away and we had no help. Three weeks after they were born, just to make ends meet, I had to get a job. And I got a job as a waitress near your church. On my first day at work, I waited on a, young group, of, uh, a group of young career people from your church <clears throat> and was pleasantly surprised at their kindness. They even asked and learned about my situation with our five kids, including the, tri the triplets at home. These folks came in every Sunday and always it seemed to me they left tips bigger than they did the week before. But more than that, they lifted my spirits. They comforted me. It, it made me look at waitressing as a way of serving people for God. Our first Christmas was financially so hard and the young folks from your church didn't come in to eat. But they did come by and drop off enough money that we could even buy all of our kids Christmas presents. I went straight from work that day to Walmart to shop for toys, and I wept the entire time. People gave me a lot of str strange looks, but I didn't care. My husband and I moved near family a couple of years ago, and he makes enough money now that I can stay home and take care of our children, but this experience recently came to my mind, and I had to write you and tell you that it was through these young people and from your church family that ultimately brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. I thank God for letting, letting me serve this group from your church. God bless you and all your church family. Wow. What a great wake-up call for all of us to, to reach out beyond our comfort zone and love people. Everyone around us is hurting. They need to know the love of God. They need to know God. And you can share that with them, how they can know him. And, and our ability to love God and others comes from God's love for us. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. God's given us this unconditional agape love, and so we get to communicate that to the people around us. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, every time we gather, it's such a great reminder that we're to go back out into this world to represent you. We want your love to guide us in everything we do. Give us your strength to love unconditionally to extend your grace and your forgiveness freely to others. May our love be a testimony of your love for us. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent Jesus. I know, Father, that the way your spirit works, he can use even the words today to draw people to yourself 
into a personal relationship with you. And may they respond, if that's what you're doing in someone's life this morning, may they respond by faith. Receive you as Savior and Lord. And Father, all of us thank you for forgiving our sins. Our prayers that you would make us more like you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. From Romans chapter 15, I pray that God, the source of our hope, will fill you completely with his joy and his peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Please greet the folks around you. And if you happen to be leaving, you can greet them as you walk out together and go get your kids.